0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Thanks for joining us again for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. And I'll be honest, um, Charles and I came up with this question that you've read, no doubt, before you clicked because of something that happened close to home for me, not in my immediate family, but in an extended family situation, I discovered that a couple of years ago, one of my extended family's child took his own life. And the funny thing about suicide is that um there's a sting attached to it. And somehow or other, And Charles, you can verify if this is true or not in your experience. It stings harder than someone who dies in a car accident or dies of a terminal um, condition. And so the question being posed today is, what drives people to suicide? Charles, start us off with a foundational approach from the Word of God.
0: Well, in God's law, we are told that we shall not kill, and uh, we are further given instruction that he who takes the life of man will forfeit his own life, and of course, we ourselves as individual uh, creatures of God and created in his image, uh, we are just as much people as those who might be the objects of killing or murder, and so... We, by default, are governed by that same rule and that same law. But obviously, just as there are things that drive some to commit acts of violence against others and deprive others of their lives unjustly, so do there are things that drive some folks to do the same thing to themselves. So that's sort of what we want to explore here today. Um, But I think that we'll find that regardless of where the influences are coming in, The foundation is that our trust and our hope should always be in the true God.
1: Now, one of the things that when I heard this news, distressing because I knew the the young person, not very well, but I knew the person who took his own life, was asking the question, okay, first, let's, let's go to the scripture and see, are there people in scripture who took their own life? Well, of course, the first person that comes to mind is Judas. Right. Judas betrayed Jesus, took money for that betrayal, and then had remorse. And the remorse was such that he tried to give back the money, but they wouldn't take the money back. So in Judas's mindset, he had a choice, and his choice would probably be live with his bad decision if he regretted it and go back and seek forgiveness or kill himself. Now, Judas wasn't a very likable character if you study the scripture, but that's not always the case with people who we hear take their own life, especially celebrities. And having grown up in the 60s era, a lot of famous musicians took their own life either intentionally or by overdosing. And you would hear a lot of people say things like, these people were just too good for this world. And there was a lot of emotional sentimentality that went along with people who committed suicide. Have you discovered in your pastorate that sometimes people don't look at it from a biblical perspective? This person killed an image bearer of Jesus Christ, an image bearer of God, and um, they look at it a different way.
0: Well, unfortunately, that is certainly the case. Uh, <clears throat> I think that for myself, and I'm sure you as well, we want to be careful to understand that there are circumstances that would drive someone to do something like this that are hard for us to comprehend. Um, so there's a lot of emotion and, frankly, sentiment attached you know, to this. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that this is something that affects us in a way that's a Someone who's been died in a car accident or, or murdered or whatever it 's a different sort of thing I think with with the suicide and typically if it 's somebody that we know or know something about it makes us feel completely helpless or that somehow i don 't mean directly obviously but maybe indirectly we are complicit in that maybe there's something I could have done, or maybe we feel like that why didn't they talk to me you know about this but there are a variety of things that go into this action this horrific and sad, tragic action. But again, like I said, at the bottom, the the fact remains that our allegiance and our obedience in all circumstances is to be to God Almighty and his law word. And it is a denial or a turning away from that that would lead somebody to do this. I mean, you could say the same thing about any type of unlawful killing. Somebody flies into a rage and kills someone and, uh, you know, they may go to a court of law and the, and the court decides, okay, in this case, this was a justified killing. So that's why I said, you know, unjustified killing. Um, and I think that we need to keep in mind that it, at bottom, is an issue of sin, just like all actions that violate God's law are. This one, though, uh, creates in those who are left behind from the exit of the person from this physical life. Like I said, a a sort of a feeling of helplessness or is there something I should have done or I wish I had known or, or something like that.
1: And you could say that about someone who commits homicide. If you know, could I have helped that person deal with his or her anger or disappointment or frustration? But I think that we've all been affected not only by the humanism of our time, but with an expectation that we know a lot of things because we've seen it in media. So someone, I I think back, I don't know how many years ago it was now, Robin Williams, a a Mm -hmm. sort of likable comedian, people liked his movies, people liked his television show. He took his own life. And the outpouring was about what a wonderful person he was and he'll be missed. And very little was talked about in terms of those you call them those left behind, those who lived with him or or had you know a familial tie to come and find someone having hung himself or asphyxiated himself in a car with CO two. It's like you forget that that act creates victims more than just himself or herself.
0: Yes, and I um. I was really gripped by a story, knowing a few days ahead of time, this is what we're going to talk about. I was struck by a story that was in the news, I believe it was either yesterday or the day before, that I thought, well, this is amazing how this plays right into what we're going to talk about. You know, I I think most people around the country have Mm -hmm. been exposed to the Understandably, continual coverage of the de- devastation and destruction of this hurricane here on the east coast in Florida, especially, and here in South Carolina to some extent, the Hurricane Ian. And uh, uh, there was a report just yesterday, a day before, on one of the weather type channels that uh, they they had somebody on the ground, and I forgot which city it was Florida that was the hardest hit, and they were just walking through this rubble and devastation, and then the reporter was quoting the statistics about. Those who had died, uh, you know, the guy said, you know, and he was talking to somebody there who um, managed to survive it. But he said, you know, the fact is a lot of people can't evacuate. They just don't have the means to do it. And so the guy was saying among those who died in the hurricane, uh, a a, a significant percentage were over 70 years of age. And he was rattling off these kind of statistics. But what struck me was the fact that I think he listed something like in this particular city, of the ones that they knew of, 15, 20, 30 people, I, I think it was more like 10 or 15 or 20, had died because they killed themselves. They, they were so overwhelmed by the devastation of what used to be their home or their lives, they just couldn't take it. They just simply could not take it. You know, And that's a sort of tragic situation where you just your heart just breaks knowing what would have driven somebody to this. On the other hand, it still comes back to the same point that even in the face of such horrific crisis, where do we put our trust? To to whom do we look for our deliverance and for meaning in life? I don't know anything about the spiritual disposition of those poor folks who uh, executed themselves following that hurricane. But I do know that for those who have a strong faith in Christ, and God's word, that doesn't mean that they'll face a situation like that doing cartwheels and, oh, happy day, my home's been destroyed. But it does mean that they recognize that the Lord has a larger purpose in this. And just as our Christian ancestors faced many horrifically challenging circumstances uh, with courage and with faith, however imperfect, nevertheless, they bore up under it by God's grace.
1: Yes, they did. So another way to look at someone taking his or her own life oftentimes is looked at as an admission of guilt, that the person did something wrong, didn't want to face the consequences of having done something wrong and took his or her own life. And of course, we're all familiar with the reported suicides that are highly suspect in as much as somebody committed suicide, but it'd be very hard to commit suicide that way that someone else wanted this person out of the picture. So this is a complicated and a hits close to home, or at least as you put it, breaks our heart. But I decided like anything else, let me do some research on this topic and see what I can understand from it. And it's going to be no surprise to anybody who listens to our podcast that Dr. Rush Juni had quite a bit to say on it. And there's a whole chapter in his book Salvation and Godly Rule, that's entitled Suicide. And yes. he has a couple of lectures that you can also find at Calcedon.edu. not only on personal suicide, but cultural suicide and natu- and national suicide. But one of the things he points out is that at a time when Christianity is strong, and he points out the Middle Ages, the time of the Reformation, suicide was virtually unheard of that suicide goes hand-in-hand hand with a humanistic culture in the midst of decay and heading towards death.
0: I can think of uh, <clears throat> two examples that I'd like to share with our listeners and with you that fully corroborate what Dr. Rustini said. Two very different examples, but both at base are thoroughly humanistic. Now, one of them actually did result in a suicide. Uh, the other did not. But... Uh, unknown to many people, there are some people who would know this name, but a very famous and I believe Nobel Prize winning author from Japan, by the name, his first name was Yukio, his last name was Mishima, Yukio Mishima, um, spectacularly and famously committed suicide in the year 1970. He had formed his own private army, he was sort of a super nationalist Japanese, and uh, he, he was... Uh, very concerned about the fact that Japan had signed this agreement at the end of World War II to never arm themselves, all this kind of stuff. All of that really was window dressing for the fact that from his earliest days, and this was reflected in his novels and his literature, he was fascinated with dying and killing himself. And he glorified the idea of dying in the traditional Japanese suicide way of harakiri, uh, disembowelment. Where, uh, according to that culture and based on their philosophical foundations, to avoid dishonor, that would be one option for you. Rather than to be executed, you could, you know, kill yourself in that way. And this is what he did. He called a press conference. I mean, he he had rehearsed this in so many different ways. And people who had followed his writings knew that at some point he was going to do this. There's nothing funny about it, but it's just this is a foundation of a man who had no concept whatsoever of biblical faith. And his whole worldview was surrounded and founded on a profoundly humanistic one, albeit from a different culture, but that's exactly what it was nonetheless. Now, the other one is maybe better known to some of our listeners, and that was the um, French-Algerian philosophical writer Albert Camus, Uh, people who are familiar with existentialism, especially the French-speaking branch where the writers like Sartre and Camus not only wrote philosophical tracts, but they also wrote novels and plays and short stories to sort of put their ideas across. And Camus was famous for a statement that he made, I believe it was in his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, in which he, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the gist of it. He said, you know, when you basically understand what reality is all about, the only serious philosophical question, the let me say this again, the only serious philosophical question As whether or not we ought to commit suicide. And he he spent a lot of time discussing that because in his view and in the foundational view of all humanism, reality and life is meaningless and it has to be found and sought in things like pursuing decadent sexual things or pursuing the cultivation of physical strength and dominating other people or uh, in, in extolling the state or some person. And ultimately these things are not fulfilling, and they always lead to death, as Doctor Rustioni constantly quoted uh, from Proverbs chapter eight. All those who hate God's wisdom are in love with death, and sooner or later this plays out on an individual basis. Uh, not necessarily in suicide. I don't mean to imply that, but for people who really are taken in by this and you know want to promote an entire lifestyle based on a, a godless meaningless existence then you have they have to struggle with this constantly Camus was one who who uh, realized that early on and talked about it in his writings
1: there's a tendency especially in reformed circles or people who really do study doctrine it's not only limited to reformed circles but you see it more there at least i've experienced it more there and we want to talk about this subject in the abstract so could a person who commit suicide, deny himself or herself heaven? Is this an unforgivable sin? And then you can go into doctrinal positions of the doctrine of the elect and that it's God who determines who will share everlasting life with him. And you can get lost in how should we view the person who took his or her own life. And I personally think that, especially when you're dealing with a suicidal culture, which I'll go into and why I think we do have a suicidal culture. These kinds of discussions that you and I are having are more for those who are living than for us to determine where someone is or is not in relationship to eternal salvation with God. So it's a warning. It's something to look at. It's something to train people to see no matter how bad it is. You've lost your house. You've lost everything. You've lost friends in this hurricane. It's understandable that you're frustrated and desperate. However, if you know God's word, then there are certain options that will not be left open to you. And that comes by understanding what God says and being obedient to it. So this discussion is not meant to be callous and say, well, everybody who commits suicide goes to heaven. No everybody who commits suicide doesn't go to heaven no we're not in a position to understand the things that god keeps secret what what he's revealed to us is what we need to work with and since we're having this discussion and only people who are still here will hear this discussion the hope that i have in this is that they understand what actually does drive people to do it and a way in which as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, we can be in a position to help people see that's their worst alternative.
0: The Westminster Confession of Faith, um, in its chapter, I believe it's chapter 17, on the perseverance of the saints, and it discusses the issue about those who are, in fact, uh, truly saved, elect, justified, I mean, bona fide, absolute, no doubt, they're Christians, but some do fall away for a time. I mean, the key factor there is for a time. And uh, the Confession and the Catechism also point out the fact that in terms of sins that people commit, that some sins in themselves are more heinous in the sight of God than others. But that is not an issue relating to the subject of a person's eternal destiny and their right standing with God. Uh, There are obviously no Christians anywhere who live a perfectly sinless life, uh, we only know of one man who did that, of course, so it's it's a given that, as we walk with Christ as we follow the Lord's guidance and serve Him, we do so in a faulty manner, some more faulty than others, but we have the assurance of God's word that all those who are truly saved in him will, in the end persevere and never fully and truly fall away. Does't mean they won't go off the path uh, doesn't mean they might not get involved in some bad things. But if they do go down that path, they will ultimately be saved. Now, this is a sticky question in this case because generally repentance, you know, is what brings a person back. And, you know, we don't know what goes through the mind and heart of a person who is on the verge of doing this and ultimately uh, does it. But I, I think that we need to be clear, like you're talking about, in terms of people's eternal destiny and uh, if if we who are alive can make judgments about these sort of things. I think in some cases, the two examples I gave you earlier, neither of these men professed to be Christians. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning someone whom you knew. I was thinking back as we were planning on doing this, if I had ever known anyone in my life, uh, Christian or otherwise, who had someone, I mean, I, that I was reasonably close to, who had committed suicide and, I recall very vividly how just maybe uh, maybe 20 years ago now, a man who was my uh, kimpo, my karate instructor uh, in another state, um, he and I were pretty good friends. And he didn't have a lot of friends, but I was told later that I was one person that he regarded as a good friend. Uh, he took his own life. Now, there were a lot of circumstances that led up to that, and I won't go into, but he was not a Christian. He in no way professed any faith or belief. So those who are without hope, you know, it's understandable on one level, but if we're talking about people within the household of faith who commit this kind of action, well, I think that bears up how diligent and vigilant we must be in our lives to be constantly exposing ourselves and, for lack of a better term, bathing ourselves in the worldview and in the reality of what Scripture teaches. Because the Swan song of our decadent culture, which is itself is in the throes of suicidal uh, killing itself, um, is very great and very powerful. And you said you were going to allude to that here before we're done and I think I'm interested in hearing what you have to say because I don't it, it, I think it would be very easy for a person who is more interested in watching television and going to the movies and playing video games and all of these things that are the conduits of this, Um, non-biblical, anti-Christian, anti-life worldview to be influenced by it with maybe not even realizing it.
1: Before I actually go into the other implications of suicide, one of the things I discovered, and Rush goes back to a man from Czechoslovakia whose name was Masaryk, that it isn't usually the most impoverished and downtrodden people that take Mm -hmm. their own life. In a lot of cases, it's people who other people would say, wow, if I just had his fame or his success or his money, I would be happy. And so it seems rather um, interesting to me that people who suffer tremendously, you know, have a hard time feeding their family or whatever it is they do, take extra jobs, their concept of, okay, this is what God has given me or if they'd look at it from a secular point of view, this is the hand I've been dealt. They don't despair. So the disparity of the people who seem to have it all, and the person who I made reference to in in the extended family, was described as the complete package. Handsome, successful, popular, demonstrated leadership skills, and everybody surrounding him was scratching their heads. The most that anybody said was, because this happened two years ago in the fall, so we're talking after months of social distancing, being prevented from going certain places that you normally do, that very social people who have their hope in the things they get to do and the way other people view them can be desperate. So I'm not ready to say that this person wasn't one of the victims, if you say, of having the rug pulled out from under him because suddenly you can't go to work, you can't um, go on vacation, you can't travel, you can't do all these things. And so what does that do to a person if the hope is not built on Jesus Christ, but the hope is built on other things?
0: That is an excellent point in terms of the things that have happened <clears throat> in the past couple of years. Now, I don't think we want to get to, and I certainly don't want to get into get into minute details about analyzing the events and what's behind the things that have taken place in the past couple of years. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think wherever you fall out on the subject of the pandemic and all the rest of it, uh, anybody would be who is Christian and biblical would be willing to say that there are nefarious things that have been taking place as a result of these things, and certainly. Uh, many of the people behind orchestrating the response are well aware that the things that have been done lead to despair, you know, locking people in their homes, uh, cutting off all human contact or uh, dramatically limiting it. Uh, people within a certain frame of mind or condition uh, that will be devastating to them emotionally. And so, it, but it, you see, regardless of where the the point is placed it comes back to the same thing, that there is an anti-human and anti-biblical and anti-Christ drive behind these things. And if, in fact, human beings are the epitome of God's created order in the six days of creation, then those who are at war with God, they want to destroy humanity, and especially for people uh you know, that is an interesting fact that the people who live in poverty or really, really struggle to make ends meet or whatever the case may be, it, it's more the, the the people like I described earlier, like like Mishima. I mean, Mishima was a well-respected, highly world-acclaimed author. He certainly was not living in poverty. And um, in terms of Camus, his circumstances might have been rather different. But uh, you, you mentioned Robin Williams at the beginning. So, there's something in this that all these things have in common, and it is at base a rejection uh, of humanity and especially humanity in god's image
1: and I think that bears um reflection because one of the things that uh, was obvious when and you said you don't want to get into details, well, I'll get into some details, what things were allowed to stay open during the closures well abortion clinics liquor stores casinos um big box stores right well you could say well people needed food but small guys weren't allowed to stay open and what were closed churches and the church that i attend currently is still in litigation with the county for having opened its doors and the leadership of the church made the comment First of all, the church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Christ. And we've heard from so many people that if I hadn't had the ability to come to church, to be with other people, to hear God's word, to worship God, to sing, I think I would have committed suicide. So whatever the intent was to make people feel more hopeless, there were many people who came to faith as a result of this and said, no, I won't do it because they could see the signs. But to kind of go into more about this author, Maserik, this is what he had to say in terms of the roots of suicidism. And he says it's found in boredom, a reproachful conscience and the loss of faith and meaning. And he says this is the attitude of modern man. And this was how he described it. Is there a God? We don't know. Is there a soul? We don't know. Is there life after death or not? We don't know. Is there any purpose in life? We don't know. Why am I living? We don't know. Am I living? Do I really exist? We don't know. What then do we know? Is it possible for us to know anything at all? We do not know. And this systematic we do not know is called science. And people clap their hands above their heads and cry exultingly, the progress of the human mind is incomprehensible. So we no longer need even faith in God, for science has observed that water boiling in a pot lifts the lid and that the rubbed resin attracts straw. Now, if you think about that, Charles, what you're basically saying is you give up that there is the possibility of knowing anything. And yet, is not one of the attributes that God places in man is knowledge? That's a communicable attribute of God?
0: Certainly it is. And I was just thinking about the passage in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down or suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is plain to them or manifest in them for God has shown it to them. And so there's a sense in which the the fallen uh, nature of man being at war with God, the the first part of that project is suppressing that knowledge. You know, we are self-aware in our being as to who we are and that we stand Guilty before a just and righteous God, but for His grace and forgiveness and mercy. And so, if you are in that position and unredeemed, then that's your natural inclination to suppress that truth, to do away with that truth. And for some people, it leads in that uh, ultimate direction. That that I don't want that knowledge. I don't want to. You know, this we're talking about something on a very I, I'll I'll use the term psychological or metaphysical basis that maybe people aren't plainly aware of but at base it's what's driving them there's this fundamental disconnect or i'll I'll split it into a compound word dis-ease in man that he knows he's accountable to god but he doesn't want to know it and so that's what leads people down some of these paths and uh I, i think that the examples that you gave from the Middle Ages and the Reformation era, where there was, you know, very, very little incidence of suicide that we're aware of. Well, that's an interesting thing to speculate about, and that's that's all I can do. But I, it, it strikes me that, on the one hand, uh, apart from the super upper classes of medieval Europe, uh, which did not include the majority of people living, most people were serfs and peasants and slaves, you know, uh, their project was to just survive to the next day and get the work done. And in the Reformation era, it's interesting that one of the blessings of that time period was a recognition that any calling in life is a calling through which you can glorify the Lord. You know, whether you're a, a, a cobbler or you know, you shoe horses or you're a farmer or whatever it is, you can glorify God in walking that path. And that's another avenue for keeping yourself occupied and having a meaningful life. So it's no coincidence, I don't think, that those people who, for lack of a better term, have a lot of time on their hands uh, to decide that nothing means anything anymore. uh, They are the ones who sadly go down this
1: path. And so what it really is, to quote a title of another of Dr. Rush Dooney's books, it's a revolt against maturity. So things can be bad, things can be difficult. You might not know what the future holds, but you know you have a responsibility to do something. And I think one of the things that must go on in the mind of someone who takes his or her own life is that somehow they're justified. Somehow this will solve their problems. Well, since we know you die and then you face the judgment, it is not the end of their problems. So they have a huge miscalculation at best. But I thought it was interesting that Rushduni puts it in his book, Salvation and Godly Rule, and he talks about suicide, that in some cases, it's a form of humanistic salvation. Something must be destroyed, and therefore, something good will come out of it. But it seems to me that it communicates more than I was hurt. To me, it might also communicate to those who remain, And I want you to hurt as much as I do. I think
0: uh, to use the earlier example, I think in the case of uh, Mishima Yukio, that was exactly what that was all about. It was the expression uh, that, you know, killing myself is the ultimate way for me to glorify life. He wouldn't use that term. Uh, But that's what gave meaning. (laughs) I I hope it's clear to people that this, this is the world turned upside down. The complete opposite of the biblical worldview where we are to be glorifying God and uh, taking ownership of the life that he's given us to do that, to glorify him, to pursue just the opposite, to destroy that which he's created and to turn away from glorifying him in our work, um, in our relationships, to wanting to kill ourselves, whatever the motivation shows, a serious lack of appreciation and understanding of who we are before the Lord, and uh, it, it is a, a, again a very troubling subject, a very difficult path that leads people in this direction. But that doesn't give us the uh, the privilege. Uh, that's, not the, that's not the right word. Uh, it doesn't excuse us to be able to say, "Well, okay, we can just forget what God requires of us here uh, in this connection." And it certainly is an issue of uh, godly rule, because if God is not totally sovereign over all areas of life. Okay, well, I'm going to let you decide if you're going to live or not. That, I'll step away from my sovereignty here. That, that's not the biblical worldview, and that's not what God says. But unfortunately, some people seem to think that way about that and many other things.
1: So this goes back to what do we actually think the gospel message is? Is the gospel message, Jesus has a great plan for your life, Jesus wants you to accept him as your savior. I think that ends up putting people in the same boat they're already in. See, that makes it dependent on them. They have to do these things and they're probably well aware that their actions and activities don't produce the things they're looking for. So the message of the gospel is you're a sinner who's at war with God and the treaty, the peace treaty, comes through Jesus Christ. So this isn't about accepting Jesus. This is about revering Jesus, fearing the reality that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope um, in time or eternity. And so that's the message we need to share with people, not coddling them into thinking that somehow or other adding Jesus to the mix will make life better. Um, Jesus or God himself, the, the triune God is a jealous God. I used to tell my children, God doesn't share well, mm-hmm. yeah. right? He wants what's his and he doesn't really have to do that much to, I'm going to come down and punish someone who doesn't worship and give me his entire heart, mind, soul, and strength. The very consequences of that of not doing those things ends up hurting that person. And just in terms of how people might understand this, and I always like to use the example of the commuter lanes. I realize not all states have commuter lanes, but some states do. A lot of them do. And if you drive in that lane and you don't have the requisite number of people and you get caught, there's a fine. And so some, and, and the fine is usually significant enough, unless you're super wealthy, in which case you wouldn't care to make you not do it. And I think when we fail to communicate to people that being in covenant with God requires us to look at the terms of the covenant and that covenant is obeying his law. And when you don't obey his law, you become someone who has broken the covenant. And so it puts responsibility back where it belongs. And it isn't such a bad thing for someone to experience the temptation this would be all better if I wasn't here anymore, providing, okay, that's a temptation. And I know people who've expressed to me that they've gone through that. But the overriding reality was I'll be violating God and his law, and I don't want that consequence.
0: You know, I am. Um- have in my preaching preached through the gospels of mark and john and uh, it, it's interesting the impact in preaching through the gospels as opposed to the epistles can have and i remember hearing uh, dr ray sutton speak on this many years ago how many seminarians when they write out of seminary and become ordained they go right to the epistles of paul very few preach through the gospels and uh, having heard that i took that to heart at the time that was a long time ago but I, one thing i've noticed and the reason i bring this up is that i have tried to completely or modify the the phrase the gospel message or the message of the gospel because what i've noticed in preaching from the gospels is that when we read what jesus did in his ministry it says that he went about preaching the kingdom and so I try to substitute the phrase um, the the gospel with the kingdom message, uh, because this is what the gospels themselves declare that Jesus taught. And unfortunately, I think that phrase, you know, the message of the gospel, that the gospel message is something that people of a certain age will automatically associate with a Billy Graham crusade, or they will associate it with something else that really is not all that grounded in scripture. So the idea that Jesus preached the kingdom and he taught that the kingdom had come, the kingdom was dawning, that creates a very different dynamic for those who are in it and have an interest in it. And part of the thing that you do when you're in a kingdom, that you're accountable to the king. And the king, in this case, is Christ Jesus, and he's given us marching orders to bring the nations under his lordship. And if we're about doing that, we won't have time or interest in doing much else. And he also said, you know, I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age, and that means you're going to face trial and tribulation difficulty in this path, but you are to not be without hope. And I think for people who are focused on that kingdom message, the issue that we're discussing today doesn't even show up on the radar screen, no matter what happens. It's not to say that people won't struggle, That they, like the confession I alluded to earlier says that we, we fall, may fall away from it for a time, but uh, if we are exposing ourselves constantly to this kingdom message, that will inform everything in our lives, including how we deal with the tragedies like losing your home in a storm or um, a spouse dying or you know, being shut in for weeks and months and years at a time with very little contact. Um, I'm not saying these things are easy. They're not a cakewalk by any means. But uh, th- there's nothing in the earliest history of the Christian movement that gave anybody the idea that this was the so-called prosperity message where you're going to get a new car and a big bank account. Just the opposite. Right. And yet, I don't know of anyone. Except those who were sinners and evil who killed themselves in in that early history.
1: Yes. And think about it. If you're kingdom driven, then being told you can't go outside and, and deal with people is like, I don't think so. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go make disciples. Oh, it's hard. You could get in trouble. All right. Well, know something about church history that those who obeyed God rather than man you know, sometimes they got in trouble. So the focus being of the kingdom will also give you an awareness that says, this doesn't make sense. You know what? Um, Not going outside and getting fresh air and smiling at other people and, and, and interacting is actually a good thing. And so you go back to the scripture and you know why it's a good thing. It's the people who don't have hope and then don't have faith that precedes that hope. And the faith isn't, I want to believe, I really want to believe, I really, really, really want to believe. That's not faith. Faith is the truth of God's kingdom. So what's the faith? That God created, God has laws, God sent his son because those laws were broken, and those who believe in him, meaning those who follow him and obey him, have eternal life. And that's what turned the world upside down. And so what took place in 2020 was just the 2020 up until now variation of the war between two seeds. And the question always goes back to which side of this war are you on?
0: I think that is an excellent question to uh, uh, leave our listeners with and something well worth pondering for ourselves and especially for those around us who may be strangers to God's grace. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Christ is our hope. Uh, Humanistic man and his ultimate uh, authority, the state, would have us put our hope in other things. Hope in science, so called, and hope in some political figure or whatever it may be. But we know from history... Especially, also from what God's law, word teaches us, um, there is no hope in these things. And it's important to realize, as we wrap up here, that in the pagan world, the world in which the kingdom message came, and the world in which the Lord revealed Himself, you know, to Moses and in the Old Covenant Church, it was a world without hope. Uh, pessimism and evil was rampant in those times, and and there was a lot of philosophical and theological pessimism, because the philosophers and the people of those times, however brilliant they were, they couldn't reconcile reality. They could not figure out how things were in a way that ultimately made sense of anything, because they were strangers to God's grace. They rejected it when they heard it, and that led them down the path of ultimately personal, uh, if not personal, then cultural and historical suicide.
1: Yes. What I would like to leave our listeners with Understand the topic, and so I made some references. Get a hold of Salvation and Godly Rule. It's a big book, but the good part about Rush writing is that they were always individual essays compiled together, and the essays can stand alone, although reading the whole thing in context is also extremely beneficial. Understand what it is to interact with someone who has a feeling of meaninglessness in his or her life. Humanism has worked over time to convince people that life really has no meaning. Well, what we get the opportunity to do, especially in difficult times, is communicate to people that life does have meaning. So you're not going to be able to change the course of everyone's life on Earth, but you do run into people on a regular basis. Make it a point to interact with people, get to find out how people think What's affecting them, what their problems are, because everybody's, and you agree, Charles, is pretty much aware of their problems, maybe not the root of the problems, but they can tell you what's ruining their life, what's what's problematic to them. And rather than wonder, well, am I being too pushy if I'm sharing this kingdom message, be willing to be rejected so that in a very real sense, the blood's not on your hands. I know lots of people who've experienced suicide with people they knew, loved ones, um, and people can commit suicide a whole bunch of different ways. Sometimes people don't even realize it was a suicide. They'll say, oh, the, that person was in an accident. Well, since you can't interview the person who passed, maybe it was a suicidal attempt and um, they were hoping that people didn't know that. Regardless of what it is, we have a message to convey and it's better to have someone not like what you said than for someone not to hear what you've said.
0: I totally agree. And uh, I'd like to encourage our listeners to be the conduit for the hope that is in Christ, and especially if you know someone who is struggling, uh, whether it's something overtly, they've said, well, I'm thinking about killing myself. Most people, I think, who end up doing that don't say that, but maybe they do some. Uh, but regardless of the circumstance that you're in or the people you know, um, we can be that uh, source of information regarding the message of Christ and the message of God's word.
1: Exactly. So, listeners, go to calcedonstore.com. Calcedon always has a good sale going. And I know the end of the year sale is going on right now. So, you can get up to 80% off um, the original cost of a title. But the references I gave today was to the book, Salvation and Godly Rule, Revolt Against Maturity. And then there are a number of books where Dr. Juni goes into the humanistic philosophical underpinnings of the hopelessness that pervades and why. And I'm thinking of titles like The Death of Meaning or To Be as God Or the flight from humanity. These are all things that will help you as an ambassador be a better ambassador because you'll understand the underlying issues. Uh, Charles, have I left anything out that you think might be helpful?
0: Well, I would, uh, it occurred to me several times to say this. I'm glad you brought it back up. For any of our listeners who have been, say, longtime Chalcedon supporters or readers of Dr. Rustuni's works, you may have the older edition of Salvation and Godly Rule. Um, the the foundation recently reprinted it in a nice paperback format with a beautiful new cover, and um, the, for people like myself, the fonts are larger. <laughs> so uh, I try I try to get every copy of every edition of everything that's published, and uh, this one in particular is quite good. So if you've got the old hardback edition of Salvation and Godly Rule, get the paperback and the other resources that are available. And you know, the the website, the Calcedon.edu website, makes it very easy. To research this, there's a, a link at the top called Resources. And you can just type in a word like suicide or, or anything relating to a topic, and it will populate, I think, just about everything that Dr. Rastuni said or wrote because it will reference books, uh, Calcedon Report articles, Faith for All of Life articles, audio lectures, all kinds of things. And many of these things you can read online.
1: Yes. And the advantage of taking... um. Advantage of the sale is that you then have things to share Um I've gotten out of the habit of giving people books I lend people books so that I can say by the way How are you doing on that and it and it reminds them and it gives me an opportunity to say have you read it because I don't just Lend people books because I go up to some random person to hand them a book Usually it has something to do with things we've said or we've discussed and so That way, you can keep on the subject and make sure it doesn't go by the wayside. But I honestly think that having resources that are available that you can share with other people will be initial steps in helping them understand the truth. And maybe you won't have the lament, gee, I wish I could have done something. I wish I could have spoken into that person's life because you're making a deliberate um, decision to speak into someone's life. Yes indeed. All right. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you wish to contact us, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is the way to do it. And we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.